This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today on Dreamland, we have got an extraordinary guest. Uh, I say extraordinary, and you, you're going to agree with me in just a second when I tell you who we're talking to, sitting there giving us that big smile from way down under in Australia. Uh, Drew is one of the subjects that is mentioned in the new book, Them. He is the person who, with his wife, spent over two hours in the dead of the night trying to keep something from dragging his soul out of his body. A long time ago now, it's probably been close to 40 years now, hasn't it, Drew? 35 or 40, yep. 35 or 40 years. Drew is an artist, and there will be links to his artwork uh, on the uh, website. And he sent me and Anne a painting of his years ago. And it was it is a magnificent painting of a of 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 land floating in the in the galaxies and in the stars. It's a beautiful thing. I don't have it here in California. It's in in Texas, but I do still have it. And it's a treasured possession. Now, Drew, let's let's weave back along the years, if you will, to those early days and. What were you doing with your life in those days? I had just completed, um, well, I trained as a teacher, as an art teacher uh, at Melbourne um, Teachers College. And uh, I had resigned from teaching because I I really only ever wanted to be an artist. And uh, I had, I was also interested in music. I'm still a professional musician, a keyboard player. And uh, at that stage of my life, I was working from home. Now we lived in um, we lived in a rural community about thirty five or forty uh, kilometres northeast of Melbourne, in the bush, uh, quite isolated. And uh, I was uh, working full time as an artist from home, while my wife at that stage was uh, teaching. She was also an art teacher, and uh, my two children were um, uh, uh, students at the local little school of about twenty students. So here we are in the bush, in our own home, uh, fairly isolated. I'm working as a full-time artist in the studio every day and occasionally going down to see my brother uh, closer to Melbourne who was um, a sound uh, technician uh, to do uh, studio recordings just for fun, basically. So so you were basically uh, an artist... And uh, and uh, sort of uh, t- touching the music world. How long had you been married at that point? We were married in 1970, so uh, possibly um, 20 years, 15 or 20 years. Now, we had uh, you had had you had any anything happen to you before that, or your wife that she mentioned to you, perhaps? That was unusual, or in any seeing anything flying in the sky unusual, or anything. Oh, yeah. Anything. <laughs> um, when I was uh, when I was at Melbourne Teachers College, the first time I became aware of um, uh, UPA or UFOs or whatever you want to call them was the famous West Hall um, High School incident, where two hundred and fifty students had a 
uh, uh, source of land in their backyard. This is all a matter of record, and that was all hushed up. So that is one of the, the most uh, um, amazing uh, and fully documented uh, multiple witness cases in the world. Uh, can, can you tell us a little bit more, go into a little bit more detail here? Yes. Uh, okay. Westall High School um, right. is a, a Australian high school uh, north uh, northeast to east of Melbourne in what is called the Dandenong Ranges. In 1966, students came tearing into the uh, the staff to um, say that it was a saucer outside, and the biology teacher who has been recently interviewed. I uh, said, you've got to be joking, and didn't believe them. Eventually went out. There was a saucer hovering about three metres off the ground in the school grounds. All the students, 250, were either looking through windows from classrooms or out on the, uh, the, the school yard. And one very, very brave girl approached the UFO and uh, came up very close. She was late, later taken to hospital with uh, serious uh, illness, which is not mentioned, I assume, possibly radiation illness. Uh, two of the teachers, um, particularly one had a, a good SLR camera, was taking photographs uh, from inside through the window, and um, the kids, kids were running around, some of them hysterical, some of them fascinated, some of them crying, um, and the whole thing was uh, completely covered up. While the UFO was uh, approaching the school, it must have been seen elsewhere because it already had five light aircraft circling around it in Dandenong, and they continued to circle the air, obviously fascinated. Uh, the pilots were fascinated and keeping an eye on it while this was all going on, so multiple witnesses. And um, eventually, uh, well, probably immediately, the principal phoned the police. The police came. They said no one's to, to speak about this to anyone. They, uh, the principal immediately held a, a, a school uh, meeting and a staff meeting. He told the staff that if any of them mentioned it, they would be fired, uh, that he was under pressure from the police. Eventually, two men in very, very neat dark suits came in and said the same thing. Uh, then the biology teacher who was interviewed recently and uh, talked about this day on, I saw this on Netflix only about a week ago, he said basically it wasn't so much the police or I suppose the men in black, it was the principal who was very, very frightened and just kept saying no one will mention this. However, it did appear in the local paper, and anyone can look this up online, 1966, Westall, W-E-S-T-A-L-L, High School, Melbourne. It's an amazing case. Then uh, later on when I moved to the bush, I was uh, driving down a, a, a major um, uh Melbourne Freeway heading south, pulled up a set of lights where there were four lanes of traffic. And I was in the left-hand lane. There was cars parked to me to the right because we're driving on the left. And then there was a, a median strip and two, uh, two lots of cars coming opposite direction. I looked over to my left past my wife because I'm in the right-hand side in Australia. Kids in the back. 
there were half a dozen shops which were set back about 60 metres from the road, you know, where you actually have to drive in and park near these shops. And above these shops rose a massive saucer, perhaps uh, anywhere between, uh, I'm guessing, 30 to 60 feet across. Uh, it was basically uh, your typical cigar shape. And, and it just, it, it, I said it rose, but in actual fact, it just appeared out of thin air. So it either came directly towards me at incredible speed so that it appeared just to, you know, come mm-hmm. out of nowhere, or else it just went bang like that. When it appeared, the first thing which uh, I noticed, and being an artist and very observant, you know those sparklers you can get in light for parties, the little sparklers yeah, sticks? sure. It was like it had a million orange sparklers over the whole surface of the hull. So the, the entire hull was radiating orange sparklers, or like an electrical field, if you might say. It, uh, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> it hovered there for maybe a second, and then it turned pure bright white and shot off horizontal for the same height, which was just above um, uh, telephone poles and so on, light poles, shot off straight down this road directly south at an amazing speed so it went from being this full size to just a dot of light in a split second. And over to, I always remember this, on the right-hand side of the oncoming traffic there was one telegraph pole and from my point of view in the, of my vision, as it got, uh, as it disappeared into miles and miles and miles away, it did a vertical turn exactly parallel to this telegraph pole, which is how I know it was absolutely vertical, without changing speed. So it did the uh, uh. Wow. And I was saying to my wife, look at this, look at this, look at this. And because um, I, it's like keeping a track on a golf ball. If you see it right from the first moment, you don't lose track of it. It was difficult for anyone else to see it. And then when it got up into the heavens, I had this, I know this sounds crazy, but I had this incredible feeling that we are doing this just for you, Drew. And it started doing this amazing, um, just floating, having fun sort of. Uh, so it went and then it went up through the stars and going, and that, that's when my wife finally says, ah, oh, yes, I can see it now. <laughs> see something moving, and I said, "It's not just moving; it's doing a dance." And in my head was, "This is just for you, Drew. We know you're watching." <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, but that's how I felt. No, uh, that sense of that sense or communication that it's just for you is is not uncommon at all. Isn't it? Experience, oh. no, uh, especially not among people who are having an individual approach from a, a craft like that, very often it, there's a sense and sometimes actually a voice in the head saying, this is just for you and the person is generally named, which gets me to what the heck could you think we think is going on. And um, so you've got two incidents there. Now, was there ever anyone else earlier in your family who might have had experiences that they've mentioned to you? My son Hayden, who was fiddling around setting up the volume here before, when he was very young, 
he used to uh, say he would uh, we never I only found him doing this once, but he used to walk in his sleep. And when we asked him, we found him out. Of course, we're in a remote area. We weren't in a public street or anything. We were on a three acres of land in the, in the forest. And uh, I found, found him coming in from outside where he'd been standing in the, the car park <clears throat> outside the house one night. And uh, I knew I shouldn't really wake him or alarm him. But in the next morning, you know, well, I ushered him back to bed. And the next morning I said, can you remember what you were doing out there? And he said, I went out to see the rocket ship. And okay. he, he wasn't able to, because uh, he was very young, he would have been um, six or seven. He wouldn't have known about um, the term UFO or UIP or anything like that. Uh, and we never got to the bottom of that, but uh, he did sleepwalk a few times. And uh, <clears throat> he, um, there's something I need to tell you that I didn't tell you when we first met, and that is that um, I I read, um, oh, what's his name, uh, Journeys Out of the Body and Far Journeys by, uh, what was the sound technician? Um, give me a second. Uh, oh, I haven't got it here. Anyway, I, I had been experimenting with out-of-body travel and I wondered and I got to the stage where I was able to do it uh, at will. I had no, not very much control over what happened when I came out. It was random and not very important. But um, I wondered if I'd drawn attention to myself in some way at some different level. When you when you went out, you were you talking about Robert Monroe? Yeah, thank you, Robert Monroe, yeah. wonderful, wonderful man. Yeah, Drew and I are folks are about the same age, and we. Oh, you're two years older than me, mate. <laughs> I'm three years older than you. Well, well I'm so seventy six now. Yeah, he's still a kid, but anyway, kid or not, it, it, once you reach must pass past the age of seventy, you start to have these blocks on names. A lot of people do. And my doctor explained it to me that it, you panic when you try to remember a name because you're afraid you're not going to remember it, and that causes you to not remember it. And, I wrote um, it down, but I couldn't find the page. In my right, exactly. So anyway, so it, you, I met Robert Monroe, and I've had a few out-of-body experiences, but the thing that interests me about yours is your ability to control it. Yeah. And when, when you went out, what did you do? Well, the first, the first thing, Whitley, that I discovered, and I, I kept a dream diary and I kept a, an out-of-body diary because uh, it was two different, obviously, experiences. But once I left my body, I used the, um, I used the Robert Munro method uh, called the uh, rollout method. Where yeah, I, that was the one that worked for me, just one yeah, time. Yeah, I used to roll out to the left. And the very first time I did it, it was so real that I was still in the flesh I've, we had a concrete floor underneath us. We hadn't at that stage uh, in the bedroom been able to afford a carpet or underfilt. I remember as I rolled out the very first time I started coming down towards the floor, I thought, I'm going to break both kneecaps. And I got that far from the floor and I just stopped. And then I stood up and the whole room turned into like gold dust. I couldn't see my body on the bed. I could just see gold dust everywhere. And I was standing at the end of the bed, swaying, trying to look back at my body, and then I took off. But the thing, the first thing that I learned about out-of-body travel is that thought is action. 
Yes. You must control the direction of your thoughts. Otherwise, you wind up doing a lot of random stuff, which is pretty much pointless. Yeah. And I must say that after um, after a while using the Robert Munro technique that I was able to put myself into what he called the 10 state in seconds. I could lie down and use self-hypnosis just to speed up the whole process. You know, the more often I did it, I could say, I'm going to go to the 10 state now, lie down and relax. But um, I had control about how and when I was going to leave my body. But I can tell you now, I had no control about what happened afterwards. I found myself in many strange and amazing circumstances, which obviously came about because I let my mind wander and I didn't stay on track. Tell I would have been a lousy remote viewer. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about some of those those situations. Okay, well, the first time we, we had we had a little clock uh, that had the flip over times. Mm-hmm. Not, not not a digital, just had a little white tag that flipped over. So the very first time before I came out of my body, I looked across at this and I noted the time, and I actually wrote it down in my diary. Uh, at that stage, I'd been trying for about three months without success, and this was the first night that actually happened. So I uh, felt the vibrations come. I, I asked them to speed up, and then my whole vibrational rate changed. I came. I, I wasn't quite sure whether I was in or out of my body, so I reached my right arm out, and I thought, oh, now I've blown it. I've blown it because I've, I've moved a part of my body. And then I proceeded to pass my right arm clean through my wife's torso and out the other side, <laughs> lying in bed with my arm through my wife's torso going, holy cow, yeah. at least my arm is out. And then I brought my arm back in and I, 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 as I said I did the, then I did the roll out and I went looking for my father who had recently died, probably uh, a bit of a hard ask. I wasn't successful with that. Now, this is all gets very strange. Do you mind? <laughs> That's what we're here for. Um, so I found myself in a street with no street lighting except for lanterns and uh, flames, I guess. And down, and the, it was a cobbled street. It was nighttime and there was an inn. And the first thing I heard was singing in this inn. And they were singing Little Round Joe. Do you know that song? Sure. Okay. So a whole bar room was singing Little Round Jug. And I was some distance away, about um, maybe 150 metres, looking down a slight hill, hovering. And eventually a lady came out. And she was very well-dressed for because I had the feeling that I might have been in some old English town back in the 18th or 17th or even 16th century. And she was wearing, this is burned into my memory, she had, she had uh, slightly longer than shoulder-length natural auburn hair or red hair. She was beautiful uh, and she was just walking normally. She was wearing uh, an emerald green neck uh, to, to toes uh, like corduroy or, you know, that sort of fabric, 
gown, one-piece gown, and she walked towards me and I, I hovered towards her and I said, who are you? And she said very distinctly, she said, Drew, don't tell me you still don't know who I am. And then I did a few other things. I came back into my body. I sat my body up in bed because there's no change in consciousness. I noted the time that I'd been out for nearly two and a half hours uh, by the little click-over clock. And this is the interesting part. Remember this, I'd been out of my body for a long time. I got out of bed. I got into the corridor uh, outside our bedroom and all I could feel was gravity. I could feel 14 pounds per square inch pressing down on every part of my body and I walked up and down groaning saying, oh, I can't stand the weight. I can't stand the weight. And every little ache and pain that I had in my body that I hadn't experienced for two and a half hours, I was fully aware of when I normally wouldn't be. And so... It's the only time in my life that I've been aware of the pressure of gravity because I've been floating for two and a half hours or God knows how long and I don't know where I've been. So the upshot of all that, Whitley, is that every time I came out of my body, unless I stayed totally and utterly focused, I was unable to achieve much of any value or certainly nothing was going to change my life other than the fact that I now know that anything and everything is possible. Yeah. And what's, what is, is the change? What caused that change in your attitude? Good question. Continued out-of-body travel, uh, other things that have happened in my life, which uh, um, I don't know if I even should talk about because they're so far out. No, that's why we're here. Go ahead and talk. Uh, okay, um, on one occasion uh, I was, um, uh, I had my lovely dog, Wusty, uh, uh, a Kelpie Collie Cross. Uh, I was hooking her onto the chain and she just walked off as if she wasn't on the chain and she parted the chain and both ends of the chain dropped to the, dropped, dropped to the ground but both links were still uh, solid. Unbelievable. Oh. A dog just walked off on the line. The chain just walked off and she just made those links disappear. And anyway, so I was out staying at my mother's and I said, Mum, Mum, come out, look at this, look at this, look at this. Oh, you won't believe what happened. She said, oh, you didn't tie it up properly. I said, no, 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 you don't get it. Look, these these two links, she, she just made them disappear. So I hooked her up on another chain. Mum went back inside the kitchen making a cup of tea. And it was like the universe said to me, ah, you didn't believe at that time? Check this out. She walked off again and the next chain, she got uh, brought it up off the ground until it was level with her neck and it did this and the two ends of the chain dropped to the ground and both links were untouched. So that was uh, a lesson for me in the term, uh, in the, the uh, there was a lesson of impossibility. Impossibilities do exist. Uh, yeah. And various things like that. I could go on. So uh, I've also had a way to the impossible. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, preparing the way, preparing. This was, this was, whisty, uh, whisty, whisty. This was after I wrote to you. This was after I wrote to you. And um, after you wrote me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Long, long after, because I didn't get this particular dog until after I'd written to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many things like that. And, and more UFO, excuse me, more UFO sightings. Um, one time I was out in the desert, I was employed, uh, I beg your pardon, a close friend of mine was um, employed by the government to try and work out how to cull kangaroos in Australia because in one particular area the kangaroo population was getting immense and uh, some people had, uh, uh, in the government had, um, in his particular department of lands or whatever it was, where he was quite high up, had suggested coming over with uh, helicopters and machine guns, which was immediately rejected. He came up with the idea of giving the um, trying a, a technique to give kangaroos the pill. To do that, we needed to work out what their best feed was. So we went up into a desert area called the Little Desert in Victoria, and this uh, uh, to Hatakolkine National Park, which is a vast. Uh, sand hill and uh, semi-arid park. And my job was to sit, uh, and I can tell you when this was, is when Haley Comet appeared. Uh, and because I took well, photographs of Haley Comet. Yeah, so I don't know the year, but it was Haley Comet was in the sky and it was so easy to see in this desert with no artificial lighting. Now, my friend and I, were the only people in the park apart from the park ranger and one uh, American tourist who had ridden in on, of all things, a, a, a push bike, a, a, a bicycle. He was camped near the um, the ranger's office at a, a little lake. There was no one else there. We said the uh, ranger, my friend knew the ranger, and he said, anyone else here in the park? The park is like hundreds and hundreds of square miles. Uh, you know, picture Yosemite, Yosemite or something like that, but desert. And uh, we were we were tasked with going out about thirty kilometres. Uh, I bet kind of about fifteen thirty k round trip, about fifteen kilometres from the ranger's office. And he assured us that there was no one else in the park. He, there's only one way in. They had to come through him. He said that guy over there in the tent, the American guy. That's him. So we got on the Land Rover and we got out and we found a, a, a wonderful saucer-shaped dish which was basically a donut of uh, sand dunes, big depression in the middle. Uh, the diameter would have been 60 to 100 metres and we put a steel stake in the middle and then we ran various other steel stakes out and we put 10 different feeds out, you know, from bran to grain to... Yeah. grass and grass hay and and so on. And my job was to sit there all night in a, a, a little hide uh, and observe with binoculars uh, in starlight uh, what kangaroos came out and what was their preference and to take notes so that we, we could then add the, the, uh, the pill uh, to, to block uh, further births to that particular substance and then spread that through the, the park and other places where kangaroo populations were a problem. At one point, uh, my friend came to relieve me. I'd been there alone all night. Nothing had happened. 
As a matter of fact, I hadn't even seen more than a couple of kangaroos. And um, he pulled up. And now the ridge that I was on was uh, about five metres, about 15 or 16 feet higher than the car. So I had a good view. And I was looking down into this depression. I looked down at him. Oh, uh, he's arrived. And uh, his name was Brian. That's all I need to tell you. So Brian had arrived. And he came up to me, trudged up the sand dune, and he said, how's it going? I said, oh, not much is happening. With which, 100 metres away on the far side of the dune, a dome of light came out of the desert. And this, this guy was a scientist, and he didn't like what he saw. No, I bet he didn't. And the dome it was, came up like half a, a fishbowl, and it was pure white light, and it rose to about 60 to 100 feet in the air, which meant that it was about 100, 120 feet wide, and it was getting to about two-thirds of the size of this depression that we were observing. And he was stunned, and I was stunned. I've never seen anything like it. And then it gets better. And then it came down slowly, came down, and as it came down, it actually shrunk in. Uh, diameter as well as in height. Well, he ran down the slope. He got into his Land Rover and he drove around there and we're on walkie-talkies with each other. And he said, am I in it yet? No. And I said, you're right in the middle of where it is. He said, there's nothing here. He came back. He came up the sand dune again. He said, I don't know what's going on. So he then radioed, radioed, uh, this was about four in the morning. He radioed the and got the uh, the uh, guy out of bed who was uh, the uh, what did I call him the uh, the ranger. Got him out yeah. of bed and said, "You are sure there's no one else here?" And he explained. He said, "We've just seen this massive light come up out of the desert like a huge bowl." And the guy said, "No, no, you're it. There's no one there." We then he hung up and we looked due north towards the Murray River which was still about 10 or 15 kilometres away, and about 10k away, another dome of light came up. Oh, my word. And it was, it, we were elevated. There were no hills or mountains between us. This is flat desert landscape undulating. And it came up and it went down again in about 10, 15 seconds. And he got on the phone again and he said, you sure there's no one out here doing tests or anything like that? No, 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 no. <laughs> so in his mind, it was someone doing some testing, even though he actually drove over the spot in a remote area where there was only us, and he's right. sitting over the spot where this had emanated from, and he still could not get his mind. And I understand that it's perfectly okay. He could. He had to think of it as some scientist. So from then on, uh, we were told by the range, oh, it was probably swamp gas. I said, what bloody swamp? <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, uh, the, uh, uh, the man who came up with swamp gas originally regretted that for the rest of his life. Uh, and he thought that he had harmed the whole thing by using that term and causing the media to... Uh, can't latch on to it and that's what happened to you uh drew we need to take a break we're going to take a brief break here folks uh, sure. we'll be right back two years in the writing my new book them is finally ready to go it will be published in kindle and as a paperback 
on March the 23rd on Amazon. Later, it will be published as a hardcover and as an audio book. Them is a departure. There is nothing like them. It is the first book of its kind, a completely new way of looking at the close encounter experience, a deep exploration of both the civilian and military experience of contact with the visitors. And both have been very profound. Much of this material is simply not known, but I go into it, I think, more deeply than anyone ever has before. I don't talk about my own experiences in this book, but rather about the experience itself. Them. Mitch Horowitz calls it in the preface among the most important interpretations of visitor phenomena since Jacques Vallée's passport to Magonia in 1969. Dr. Vallée says in his foreword, the book cites fact after fact to build the case for in-depth realignment of public policy and public need. Diana Walsh Pasolka, author of American Cosmic, says, leads the way, and it's best that we listen, because the stakes have never been higher. EarthTech International President Hal Putoff says, them is exceedingly valuable. Leslie Kane, author of UFOs, generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record, says, groundbreaking in the truest sense of the word. Bigelow Aerospace VP Colm Kelleher says, searing and masterful. Them, a new vision and a new way of looking at close encounter. You have never read anything like them before. It is the beginning of a new way of looking at our own future. UnknownCountry.com. It's huge. It's much more than just a Whitley Strieber book site. It contains thousands of hours of interviews, meditations, podcasts of all kinds. My original hypnosis tapes are there. You can actually hear the moment that I discovered that I at least was not alone in this universe in the office of Dr. Donald Klein so many years ago. Whitley Strieber audiobooks, Communion, Transformation, The Secret School, Breakthrough, Majestic, and so much more powerful meditations, but more even than all that, it is a community of people who are either looking to gain contact or actually in contact now. There is no community like it in the world. It is absolutely unique. Contact really is happening here. 
That's what these shows are all about. That's what my life and this website are about. It's real, and it can be of enormous benefit to us individually and to mankind as long as we take our part and do it our way. This is what being a member of Unknown Country is about. So go to unknowncountry.com and subscribe today. Join us and join, very frankly, the future. We're back with Drew Gregory. Uh, Drew Gregory's website is drewgregoryartist.com, and you will find a lot of marvelous material. He's a very, very good artist, obviously. And I have a question for you, Drew. Uh, you've never done any art that was the only piece I've seen of yours that is the one you sent us uh, that sort of has a space-related or eerie kind of a theme. You've never done any of that, though. Well, yes, I have. Um, the the work, well, I've been a bit slack, and I haven't updated my website for about 10 years. I think it still <laughs> says I've only had 50, 50 uh, solo exhibitions. I've had close to about 65 solo exhibitions now. Um, a lot of the early work that I did uh, on, on uh, using the watercolour uh, on paper were um, quite surreal. Um, years and years of them, they're, they're not on my website. Uh-huh. Um, the and then when I met you, I was going through a period of showing Australian Outback floating through space because I was spending a lot of time alone in Australian Outback on research uh, field trips and experiencing the night sky by myself to, with just a campfire hundreds of kilometres from the nearest other person, I guess. And uh, I started doing these series of paintings uh, where the sky was not only above me but all around me and below me as well. Yeah, that's what we a, An island of uh, a peninsula of, of land uh, surrounded entirely by space. That's as close as I got to trying in any way, shape or form to convey the sorts of experiences that I'd had. I'd, I'm not one of these people who, you know, starts – um, painting, this is my spirit guide, or whatever else. Right. And I think that's wonderful that people can do that. Yeah. Uh, I, I just, a part, especially with the out of body travel, Whitley, a part of me after a while, and I had some very, very frightening experiences towards the end. A part of me said, Drew, I think you're just supposed to be living a normal life. Uh, and I don't think you're really supposed to be doing all this stuff. Uh, it's there. It happens. Anyone can do it. But it's probably, without knowing exactly what you're doing, it's probably not safe. If I'd been part of the uh, the original uh, program uh, by, what was his name? Uh, Robert Monroe. <laughs> Thank you. Robert Monroe and safely ensconced within that uh, university and and with all the safeguards they had in place, maybe a different matter. Now, let me ask you this. You mentioned some frightening experiences. Uh, what, in terms of time, did these happen before 
the event we're, we haven't discussed yet, but which we will discuss shortly, of being attempting to be someone attempting to pull you out of your body or after? Or was that one of them? Dur- during. During. Okay, during. so uh, let's go back to the out, because I think that the out of body travel had something to do with all of this. And um, uh, I agree. Yeah, and so you. You're doing out-of-body travel, and can you tell us the first time you encountered anyone else in that state, any other being or figure at all while you were out of the body? Other than that lady who said, don't tell me you. Um, yeah, other than that. I don't know who I am. I still don't know who she is uh, or was. Okay. I believe from my very second experience – when I came out of my body, that there is a layer very close to earth, which is a really nasty, scary layer. And I was speaking with my son last night and and, uh, he learned to do this uh, for a while until he gave up uh, the out-of-body travel. And we both had a similar experience. Uh, And we didn't tell each other, you know, until last night. Uh, Second time I came out of my body, I was just coming out and I had five of the scariest faces two inches from my face all going all around me, like, do not come out. Do go back. Yeah, they were they yeah, were they, they were, were after you. They were from the worst horror film you ever saw. They were trying all to scare you into staying in your body. Yeah. I well You're I not assume supposed so, to go out of our I body. assume that was their realm because I I would advise if anyone's coming out of their body to make sure they're thoroughly protected first. Did you go out anyway? I, I not that night. I no, I no so. <laughs> what frightened me was how close they were. They were right, right here, you know. And um, wow, uh, n- none of them said anything. And stayed both went. And my son last night said that uh, the first or second time he came out of his body, a being lowered itself over him and went <sighs> onto his face. And he said he could even smell the breath, which was frightening for him. And that he thought, "That's it. I'm not going to come out tonight." Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah and, that, and then there were, I think. I now believe there are universal truths because if I've had an experience which I think is very, very weird, and then at not beforehand, but at a much later date, I read about someone else or several other people in different circumstances having the exact same experience, I think, okay, maybe that's a universal truth that I can accept that just doesn't happen to me. It happens to lots of people. And that gives me some starting point uh, for my own personal belief system. And one of those is the black dog because many, many years later when I was still coming out of my body less frequently, it was mid-afternoon. As I said, we were in an isolated part of the bush, miles from anyone, and uh, I was sitting up in there with my back against the wall and I'd relaxed. I got into the 10 state. I was just coming out of my body and... Uh, I had my eyes closed, but suddenly it, it was like my eyes were open 
It was afternoon, sun, there's a tree outside my door, and we had a big set of bay windows. I built, uh, our, I designed and built our entire family home single handedly and had these seven big bay windows. And that was my view. And as I was coming out of my body, a huge black dog, uh, like a Doberman, but double the size, launched itself at the window with its te- uh, lip curled back and its teeth bared and growling and just frightened me straight back into my body. Now, many, many years later, I heard of truck drivers who were falling asleep at the wheel and they were brought back onto the road by a huge black dog leaping onto their windscreen at speed and then disappearing. Now, was this dog uh, in the physical world when you saw it? Or I'm not quite sure where you... Oh no no no! It, it, when I when I was frightened back in my body, there was nothing there. There was not nothing. Well, I'm going I'm to tell you a brief story, and I, I think I know who that dog was, and I think I know why he scared you. Um, I was uh, doing. I do meditation. You you may know my listeners certainly do every day, three times a day at uh, one in the afternoon, and. Uh, 11 at night and at three in the morning and have been doing for many years. And one afternoon, this was before I was doing it so regularly before Annie, when Annie was still with me physically, uh, I was doing it in the afternoon, one afternoon. And I suddenly saw a dog in my mind's eye, not, not, not in the physical world. And I recognized the dog. The dog was a dog called Quagmire who had, um, been um, the dog of the very, very unhappy, difficult life this dog had uh, when I was a boy. It not It's not my dog, but a dog of some friends, or not our friends, but a dog in the neighborhood, let me say. And um, this dog was the father of that family, had PTSD. He'd been badly roughed up in the Korean War. And that man would erupt in in anger and beat the dog up and stuff. And but that dog, despite his awful life, was always happy. He was always happy. And here he came up to me fifty years later in this meditation, wagging away and going on. And I thought, my God, how? Why am I thinking of Quagmire after all these years? And I mentioned it to Anne the experience. And she said, dog, God, you had a visit from God. And I thought, oh, no. I said, I no, no, no. I, I'd have to have a sign. And a half hour later, we went out walking and there was a car with a, a personalized license plate sitting on the roadside, on the curb. The personalized license plate read QGMIRE, Quagmire. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, I had a visit from God in the form of a dog called Quagmire. And Annie used to say, Annie knew these things. She said, Whitley, you find dogs and God, God visiting people in dogs all the time. And I think that was our own creator telling you, Drew, I'm, I'm personally warning you, get the hell back in that body that I gave you and don't come wandering out here. Uh, because I'll get after because you. Because I'm not meant to be. Yeah, it's not meant to be. You're you're supposed to be doing the physical right now. Um, it scared me straight back into my body. It was frightening. Oh, I bet it was. 
but beautiful too at the same time. And um, so, so okay. Now let's go on to that night. Uh, you, you, what were you doing? Bef- the night it happened, the night evil came into your life. Right. I like. I like to get it straight from the, the uh, right from the very start. That um, even though I'm a musician and artist, I don't do drugs. I've had a puff of three marijuana in my life, I think, when it was passed around a room at a party. That was it. Right. <clears throat> my last my last alcohol was about a month ago. Oh, last I had a glass of red wine with my, my son and, and his partner last night because uh, I'm down in his studio down in Geelong at the moment because he's got he's actually a filmmaker and uh, editor and he's got the, well, he's, he's got me set up under lights. And you know, you mentioned your son a lot. He sounds like an awfully interesting guy. Yeah, he's very talented. Anyway, so um, I don't do drugs. Uh, I don't believe in polluting my body any more than I have to. So I, I, I have a social drink with my my partner, Eliza, a lovely lady, uh, when we get together or if we have a meal. So no drugs, no alcohol. Uh, I'm pretty grounded. I'm pretty down to earth, uh, very practical person. You know, I design and build our own house. Um, so with my, at that very amateurish uh, level of music and back in those days, my son had a, uh, my, my, uh, my younger brother, David had a, um, a recording studio, uh, 10 James Street, Pakenham. I remember that, uh, he's no longer there. So it's not, a, a, it's not a studio anymore. We went down there for a day and one evening, uh, two days and one evening and, um, we recorded two or three songs with another professional person who I, I picked up on the way. So we finished. The recordings were great. We're, they were all mixed by my sound engineer, little brother. Uh, we had them in the can, so to speak. Uh, it was a 60-mile, 60 65-mile uh, trip back to uh, uh, our bush block and uh Two-thirds away in the journey, I dropped off the uh, guitarist and then the uh, the singer actually lived in the same little town that we did. Not a town. We, we, didn't, we, had a, we don't have a store or a post office or anything. We, we just have a, a hall and a fire brigade. That's it. And late at night, probably getting around about, I don't know, I can't remember. I would have put it in my letter for sure, but I can't tell you now. But late at night, maybe midnight, I dropped him off and came back along this very, very lonely track, track towards our house, uh, travelling about two or three miles. I was in a wonderful state of mind. I was happy. I was content. I was looking forward to uh, playing the, the tapes uh, to my family the next day. And because they were all three numbers, uh, I'd written myself. And uh, I got into bed very, very quietly because my wife was asleep. The kids were asleep across the hall. And uh, I remember I put my head on the pillow and I was having an imagine. you know how we have an imaginary conversation with someone? I was having, I was wide awake, but I was relaxed. I was having an imaginary conversation with a neighbour about something. Well, now, hold on a minute, Drew. First, we're going to take another break. And then I want to explore a little bit the imaginary conversation because it could be important. We'll be right back. 
Okay. Two years in the writing, my new book, Them, is finally ready to go. It will be published in Kindle and as a paperback on March the 23rd on Amazon. Later, it will be published as a hardcover and as an audio book. Them is a departure. There is nothing like them. It is the first book of its kind, a completely new way of looking at the close encounter experience, a deep exploration of both the civilian and military experience of contact with the visitors. And both have been very profound. Much of this material is simply not known, but I go into it, I think, more deeply than anyone ever has before. I don't talk about my own experiences in this book, but rather about the experience itself. Them. Mitch Horowitz calls it in the preface among the most important interpretations of visitor phenomena since Jacques Vallée's passport to Magonia in 1969. Dr. Vallée says in his foreword, the book cites fact after fact to build the case for in-depth realignment of public policy and public need. Diana Walsh Pasulka, author of American Cosmic, says, leads the way, and it's best that we listen, because the stakes have never been higher. EarthTech International President Hal Putoff says, them is exceedingly valuable. Leslie Kane, author of UFOs, generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record, says, groundbreaking in the truest sense of the word. Bigelow Aerospace VP Colm Kelleher says, searing and masterful. Them, a new vision and a new way of looking at close encounter. You have never read anything like them before. It is the beginning of a new way of looking at our own future. Where is the unknown country? Is it out there in the stars? Or is it also somewhere else? Is it in us, in you? Unknown country, join us today. Go to unknowncountry.com right now and join us. Join the questions, join the search, join the adventure. UnknownCountry.com, there's no place like it in the world. We're talking to Drew, uh, his website, uh, a Drew Gregory Artist. And you can say .co.au, 
and uh, you can look at his wonderful artwork there. And now let's get back to this issue of you had an imaginary, who did you have an imaginary conversation with? The imaginary conversation was with the sister of the guy, the, the singer, who had just dropped off in our, our little area. Our, our, it's not a town, just our area. Uh, and I dropped. I didn't see who when I dropped him off. He just got out of the car and said good night. But I was just, I was just simply having a a, a non-related conversation in my head with something else uh, with his sister, and uh, that's all I can tell you. So I don't think an ordinary, just an ordinary. It was a very ordinary, ordinary. conversation. So you, you're, you're an, it was, but it was imagined. It was, you know, it was yeah, just I a, understand. Yeah. So it, we could conclude then that it was just incidental to the experience. It, it was yeah. totally incidental. Yeah. The fact that I remember it is because it became the worst couple of hours of my entire existence shortly after that. Right. So I'm, I'm actually in the middle of her and she's talking to me. She's re replying to me in my head. Just this, you know, might have been about the weather. Who knows? And my head exploded. And no, last night, no, wait, way, wait. You say, and my head exploded, and then you start to go on. But we we need to know a little bit more about how that felt. Your head exploded, okay? And we're going to talk about that a little bit more extensively in a moment. Because, but tell us exactly first what happened. You're lying in bed. You put your head down on the pillow. Okay. Well, I was lying in bed. I was lying on my – this is important too. You'll, you'll see why it's important later on. I was lying on my left-hand side. That's the side I lie on when only when I'm ready to go to sleep. So I normally lay on my back for a few seconds or a few minutes and then I lie on my right-hand side and then when I feel that I'm dropping off to sleep, I lie on my left. On this particular occasion, I got into bed. I must have been tired. Uh, been a long day's work, and I, I'd been driving for about an hour at night time and back roads and so on. I lay on my left hand side. Um, head had only been on the pillow thirty seconds. I was having this conversation. Halfway through, her replying to some inane question, uh, I thought two things happened. Either a bomb had blown up our whole house or an aircraft had crashed through the roof and obliterated the house and everyone in it or something like that. And last night as I was laying in bed, I was trying to remember if there was actually the sound of an explosion. And I'm afraid I can't tell you. I can't remember. All that I know is that my head expanded into billions of pieces and suddenly, I didn't exist. I was nowhere. Now, this is an interesting thing because this is a, a phenomenon. Uh, it's a, actually a medically known phenomenon called EHS, exploding head syndrome. According to the Cleveland Clinic, uh, it's a sleep disorder. Although it sounds painful, you feel no pain. You hear a loud noise or explosion in your head. The sound isn't heard by others. It happens as you're falling asleep or when waking up. It's harmless and not a sign of another serious health condition. Doesn't require 
treatment. Uh, but you notice that they don't describe exactly what happened to you. What they're describing is a sound, a loud bang in your head. And when you think about it, probably a lot of my listeners have heard that too. I've heard it too. But the difference is this. I didn't disappear. I didn't feel like I had I had ceased to exist. I still was there. There was never a moment of feeling like I'd ceased to exist, just sort of a bang, you know, in my body. So you 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 had exploding head syndrome type two, where not only do you hear the sound, it appears that you yourself have completely dis dissolved and disintegrated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at this point, <clears throat> you are lying there, or and this explosion occurs. There's now you're not seeing anything. What what exactly as you? I can tell you exactly what happened after that. I was in a state of shock, and then I wasn't in a state of shock because I no longer existed. So for for it's like it's like when you have a general anaesthetic and you know that you've been nowhere for a while, but then you come back. So I came back. And as I came back, I was in a black rushing space. I was floating. When you say I rushing was not in my bed. space, when when you say black rushing space, I was I, I all I could see was blackness, and I had the sensation of moving very very fast through space, and that at the same time, what had been me was occupied by pure utter evil, and I have to say, the events of later on the night, which we will get to, pale into insignificance compared to this moment. You you are really, I can see it in your face. You're living back to that moment. And I've got the shakes already. Yeah, it was insane. <laughs> well, I'm okay. I, I hope you get a good night's sleep tonight. In fact, I have to tell you the truth. Uh, now, you it's, have it's this. A, it's, it's so difficult to describe, but go on, please. No, but, it, but it, did it feel like a personality or a, being yes. like, did it have? It, yes, it was. It was. I became it. Drew didn't exist anymore. I was. I was the embodiment of all evil, and I knew it. And I was now in charge of this body. And I Boy. and the, the the me within me had diminished to about one percent. And this evil thing, which was not an evil idea or a, a nasty person, this was evil incarnate and I was it. And I was 99% it. And then that 1% of the me within me, which I knew was the original me, my soul, if you like, started fighting back. And the fight was... I guess, purely mental, uh, and then I found myself in bed but laying on my back and immobile, unable to move. You couldn't so I'd move. gone from lying on my left-hand side. I was now lying on my back, and as I wrote in the letter, 
both my ears were filled with tears. I was lying perfectly on my back. Both my ears were filled with tears, so I'd been crying for a you long, long time. Crying. It's so that- and as I turned my head to the right to try and um, when I finally was able to move a tiny bit of my body, which was my head, I was screaming and nothing was coming out. All the tears fell out of my right ear under the pillow. So I reckon it... I don't know how long it takes, I know this sounds stupid, but I don't know how long it takes to fill both ears when you're laying on the But you were crying a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you were, And uh, is there any sense of passing time at all? No. No. No, no, no. And did this, so do you feel? The, the black, the, sorry, the black rushing sensation of being in space and darkness and being fully, I, beca- I became... I became this evil entity and that was the – and the emptiness in my own soul is the – I would – it is nothing in this universe could be worse, nothing. I can't imagine ever being able to go through that again. And But obviously some part of me had the power to be able to fight that. And, and because that little part that was left – yeah. It was good. It was a good man, a good being. Now, did this thing, did you have any sense of a personality or a name or anything about it? The, it was pleased. It was pleased. Pleased. It was pleased. You know, that's. I think that might be the scariest thing I've ever heard in my life. That is... I mean, I can see in your face, you're remembering how awful, Drew. It was pleased. And you know, people who... He thought it it had succeeded. Yep, but people, I want to say this, folks. Anyone who thinks this is a made-up story and it's fiction, as soon as you hear him say that, of the his sense of it being pleased, no one's going to make that up. It's that happened to you, and that happened, and that's how it felt. Wow! And it was the worst, however many seconds or minutes of my life, and I wouldn't wish it on any any human being, any any animal, nothing. Well, we're going to keep on keeping on. Uh, unfortunately, okay. the friend the free part of the show is over, folks. So I urge you, as always, to subscribe to Dreamland. It's absolutely unique in the world. No one else will ever have a show like this, this, uh, because there isn't anyone out there but me who can actually interview someone like Drew like this, because it's just nobody has the same mix of experience and knowledge that I do. So you really have, are hearing something extraordinary here. And But in any case, those of you who listen, listen on the free side, as always, thank you, and we'll be back next week. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.